The following content is brought to you as part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Oldham County. Join us each week as we examine the book of Job to see Jesus at the center of one of the earliest recorded texts in Scripture. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. It's week four, starting tonight, and uh, we're going to cover chapters 27 through 31. And so I'm taking that as a whole unit, okay? And so... I break it up into first into two speeches that Job has. And there's different themes throughout both of them. Um, but Job is essentially, in the first two, going to respond to... Well, actually, the first two chapters are really weird, just to be honest with you. But chapter 28 is probably my... Outside of the last chapter with God, is probably my favorite chapter. has come to be my favorite chapter in the whole book. And so I'm excited to get to that. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to give you... A minute. Just get out a pen, your phone, and I want you to define wisdom. I want you to think about it just for a minute or two. I want you to write down, physically write down or type out a definition of wisdom. So you can go ahead and do that. All right, so I want you to hold on to that definition. We're going to come back to it um, later on. Um, but I w- what I hope to do is just, it's really for your sake. First, get those brain juices a flowing. Okay, but also when we come back to it later on tonight, I want you to kind of compare what you've written down and what your understanding of wisdom is based on what we're going to be seeing in Job. Um, But as we get started uh, in Job, we're going to look first at the first two chapters. And so, again, for those who maybe if you missed a few weeks or maybe this is your first time, I don't think this is anyone's first time, so I don't think I have to go all the way back. Um, But we know that... um, Job has been inflicted, afflicted um, with suffering, physical, mental, spiritual. He, he's going through suffering. And uh, the important thing we see here, again, is that there hasn't been a sin, and we're told this specifically, there hasn't been a sin to cause Job's suffering. So Job is suffering, and we got a glimpse into heaven and what's happening between God and the Satan and so we know the background and the exchange that happened there, but Job never sees any of that. All Job knows is what's happening to him. Job doesn't see, didn't see anything in chapters 1 through 2 other than the things that actually happened to him. So we got to always, I know you're probably sick of hearing that, but we got to keep reiterating, reiterating that and keeping that in our mind because it's so important. And also the fact that there hasn't been a sin to cause his suffering. And so this theme that we've brought up every single week is that this theme of an innocent sufferer that not meaning that Job has never sinned or that he's sinless or perfect. Yes, of course he's sinned. All people have sinned except for Jesus. So we're not saying Job is sinless. We're just saying that for the purpose of this book and for the purpose of this suffering that he's going through, God is not punishing Job based on something that he has done wrong. Okay? That's important for us to, to grasp. Um, and so we want to keep carrying, carrying that theme all the way through. And then what we saw, and so we saw, when we look at Job, we see a real person. where It's not just, you know, a motivational 
picture, a two-dimensional picture of this person that's just giving you platitudes to encourage you in your life. No, in, in Job 3, he, he regrets the day he was born. He regrets the day he's conceived. And so we see a, three, a real person going through real pain, anguish, and suffering. And so as we go through, we, we know that his friends come up, and we spent the last two weeks looking at the friends' responses um, beginning in chapters 4 all the way up through chapter 26. And so we, we talked about some of those themes, and by no means did we cover everything, um, but the general theme of the friend. And, and again, we're calling this system that the world believes is happening to Job and that his friends believe, we're calling it the system, okay? Meaning they believe, okay, if something, if you've done something wrong, something bad happens to you, okay? That's just how it is. So Job, you... You're suffering, therefore you've done something wrong, right? But Job has said over and over again, that's not the case. I know, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that there, if only there was someone in heaven, I know that there's one who lives that is, that knows my integrity, that knows that I'm blameless, that I'm upright, that I've turned away from sin. And so we know that, right? And Job knows that, but his friends get increasingly frustrated and irritated all the way up until this point, that last cycle of speeches, right? Because it went in a cycle. One, uh, one friend would speak, Eliphaz would speak, Job would respond. Then Zophar, then Job would respond. And then, uh, or sorry, Bildad would respond. Then Zophar would respond. So it's this, there's an accusation, there's a response by Job. But as you get further on the Job, those accusations get more violent, more irritated, more frustrated, and shorter, to the point where Zophar, in the end, it's his turn to speak, and there's nothing there. He's got nothing else to say. And what we learned last week is that really, in that third cycle of speeches, they didn't have anything to add to their argument. But now we get to the point of Job, I'm going to call this Job's summary. That's kind of a, that's really a bad title for this, but um, it is. So Job is summarizing um, his thoughts and what we've seen in Job is that he's even developed some as, as a person and as a follower of God, one devoted to God. He's developed in his thinking and his belief all throughout the book. And so we really see that on display here coming into these chapters. But the interesting thing is, aside from some small comments at the very end of the book, this is the last time we're going to hear Job speak. So after tonight... That was a funny noise. After tonight, we're going to have one more friend speak. And by the way, just, you know, to get you itching for next week, very controversial figure. We're going we're gonna to dive into that. And so we'll do that. But tonight, we're focusing completely on Job and his speeches. And so um, if you're following along, we're going to start off in that first point here. In chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. And so we see Job... Standing firm in his integrity and his blamelessness, he's standing firm in his innocence of not committing any sin that's leading to this, okay? So let's read verses 1 through 6 together. It says this, and I put it down there for you. And Job again took up his discourse, all right, so he's going to start talking, and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. 
Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. And so here, just to summarize that, that's Job, again, just stating his position again to his friends. This is kind of addressed to his friends. Hey, I know that I'm right, and I know that God knows I'm right. Even in, in verse 2, it says, as God lives, he's, he's testifying, he's swearing by God that God knows as God lives, right? I know that I am right. And even, even as you go into verse 3, when it says the Spirit of God, it's not really talking about the Holy Spirit. It's just talking about this God who I'm testifying to. This is the God who has given me breath to breathe. He, he's attesting to this God. This very God will vindicate me. And so we see that he's a, this, this kind of stalwart stance. Hey, this is what I believe. This is like the ultimate summary statement for the rest of the, two cha- or the, rest of the five chapters as we keep going into it. But... Let's go to verse 13. Because even though we have less chapters tonight, it's still a lot to cover, okay? So verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the, and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. I'm going to read that again. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the inheritance that the oppressors receive from the Almighty. And so, if you remember, Eliphaz painted a picture in the last cycle of speeches. He says, look at this man who is, who is suffering. Just this abstract picture. Look at this picture of this person. A person who is wicked is one who's suffering, who's writhing in pain. And Job's saying, and, and we know that that's not true, right? Because just because someone's in pain and suffering doesn't mean that they're in sin. Well, Job's kind of doing the same sort of thing, and he's going to continue on. In verses 14, he talks about, well, let's just read. Verse 14, if his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive them, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will, ne- will wear it. And the inheritance, sorry, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed, I'm sorry, he builds his house, yeah, sorry, verse 19, he goes to bed rich, but he will, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of its place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in the headlong flight. It, it claps his, its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. And so we have this really terrifying scene. This is what a wicked man looks like. And what Job is pointing to here, and we're basing this on the context of the whole book, is like this is the lot, this is the portion of the wicked. This is what those who are evil, because we talked about before, why do the wicked seem to prosper? If you look around you, it seems like wicked, evil people are prospering all the time. But Job is saying, and, we would, and Jesus and God affirms this later on, that God will judge the wicked in his own time, in his own way. He will judge the wicked. It will come. So it's this future of looking forward to the wicked. And so chapter 27, we covered that really quick, but it's essentially this picture of Job, again, summarizing I have not done something wrong. I'm testifying before God. God knows me that I am blameless and upright, 
and I have not done anything wrong to deserve this suffering. But those who are wicked and evil will suffer in the end. They will be judged eternally. Okay? And it's interesting in, in verse 23, I'm going to read that again, it claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. And so that last word there, place, we, we end in this kind of dark place, this hissing at him from a place. And it kind of brings back images of uh, some of the friend speeches of the wicked and evil. They go to this place, this sheol where there's darkness, there's despair. But he continues on with that theme in chapter 28. So let's read the first two verses. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Now, you read this and probably in your Bible reading, if you're like me, this is just kind of a throwaway verse. We know that's not true because it's God's word, but you're like, I don't know what that's talking about. But I think Job is going to be painting a picture for us all throughout chapter 28. And he starts in that preceding verse in 27, chapter 27, verse 23. And he describes this place. And when we get to chapter 28, it almost doesn't even seem like it fits there. Because it's almost like Job is going into this discourse with himself. He's describing something. And he's not directly anymore addressing the suffering that he's been addressing. He's not answering any uh, rebukes that he's been doing with his friends. He's not doing any of that. Instead, he's about to go into this long, I mean, several verse explanation of this place. But what I want you to focus on real quick is this, this picture. I, I want you to, I've never been inside one, but think of a mine, okay? Because that's the picture he's giving us. Surely there is a mine for silver, right? He's talking about silver, gold, ore. So think of what a mine looks like. All right, I've been in a cave, but I'll tell you, honestly, when I read this, the first thing that comes to my mind, um, and, you know, some of you may think this is weird, that's fine. Who, who loves Lord of the Rings? Raise your hand. There's a few of you, okay? So, in, in uh, Lord of the Rings, okay, I'm going to give you just a brief picture, just bear with me, okay? In Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, you have a fellowship of people, all different types of people, and they're trying to accomplish this goal, okay? And they're trying to fight evil. But they're on this, they're on this quest throughout this land, and so they're going through these mountains, and they, they get to this mountain, and there's bad weather, they're on the cliff, and the bad weather is so bad that they can't go through it. And so they're trying to figure out, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Right? And, and so one of the people of the fellowship, it's a dwarf, all right, he, he suggests, let's go through the mines. That's where he's from. That's where his family lives. Let's go through the mines underneath the mountain. And kind of the leader of this quest is this old, wise sage, and he says, ah, that's the last place we want to go. But the weather's so bad up top on the mountain, that they, they decide to go underneath the mountain, okay? So they, they backtrack their path, and then they come up to the mines of Moria, okay? And so, if you haven't seen the movie, I recommend it. The book's better, but it's going to take you a long time. But it's this picture. I'm going to try and paint it for you. When they get inside this mine, it is this vast, dark, deep abyss. It's completely silent. 
And there's these holes, or these, these halls that have been carved out where people used to live, and the trails and the passages go off and off. You don't even see it. At one point, they drop something, and it goes down into this pit, and it's like a little light, and it gets dimmer and dimmer, and it just never ends. It's just this dark place. And of course, going into that, the fellowship, this group, they're very nervous, because they're like, What's, what is this? Like, maybe we should go back up on the mountain and risk that. But they're going through this, this dark deep mind. And that's, that's the image. We have to use our imaginations a little bit. So if you've never been in a mine, we know, and if you've, maybe you've been in the caves, uh, what's, what's the cave over here called? Mammoth Cave. Been there one time. And there's this part in the cave, they take you all the way down, and the lights are on, and then all of a sudden, they turn the light off. And for that second, my heart stopped. I was like, oh my gosh, We're, I just suddenly realized, I'm, I just like, we could, we could die down here, <laughs> and no one would hear us scream, you know, but it's completely dark, I mean, and they haven't even discovered all of it, but this is the image that we're getting when we look here, and, but the thing about it, as we, as we keep reading, even in the first two verses, there's a mine for silver and gold. They, they're counting that something is worth the risk of going into this dark, despairing place in order to get something that is precious and worth it. So let, let's keep going, find out what he's going to do. So um, verse 20, I'm going to do verse 1 in chapter 20 again. Surely there's a mine for silver, a place for gold that they refine. And we're going to read this whole chapter because it's, it's a beautiful picture. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang, they hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, and underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand into the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. So, summarizing this, it's a picture of this mind of, of them searching for something precious, searching for something that is valuable. And what I think is, is happening here, because in the next verse we're going to find out that that's wisdom, that this picture, and you think back to Lord of the Rings where they, they can't go through the mountain, they have to go through these dark tunnels, and it ends up being. Very difficult, if you've seen the movie or read the books. This picture of a mind that's dark, deep, there's many passageways that haven't yet been, there's this mystery that shrouds a mind that's in its darkness. And I think that's a picture of what suffering is like. I think Job is trying to get us to see that, or God is trying to get us to see when we're looking at Job, that suffering is not something that you can just read about. It's not something you can come on Wednesday night and just hear about. It's something that when you experience it, it's, it's similar to this. It seems like there's, there's this mystery to it that you can't find your way out of it. 
And so one of the questions that we keep coming back to is the question, why? Right? And we've never really answered it. But we're going to explore that question again tonight because Job is saying why. And I want you to think about in your suffering, when have you, if you've ever asked that question why, when you're in the pits of the mind and this, this picture of what suffering is like, this dark despair where you can't seem to find your way out, and you're asking the question why. But there is something precious in the midst of suffering that you can't get, right, unless you're in it. Let's go to verse 12. This hidden object is wisdom. Verse 12 says this, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed at its price. It cannot be valued, and the gold is ophir, and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. So you see this picture? This picture of the value of wisdom, and we're going to explore what wisdom is here in a minute, that although it's hard to find, it's hard to grasp, it's worth it, but there's this grasping in the world, there's this question like, what is wisdom? How do we get wisdom? And so he continues to paint this picture and you, you see it there, if you're following along in the handout, he, he's arguing two things. One, wisdom, it can't be found. It can't be found. You can look and look, but it can't be found. And, and, it's, and then he says, wisdom is so precious and valuable, he's arguing that it must be found. Okay, so, okay, well, what's this about? Wisdom can't be found. We've searched for it, right? You look for it, it can't be found, but it must be found. It must be found because it's so valuable. And it went through all that trying to describe to us how valuable wisdom is. It's, it's better than gold, silver, any of these things. When we think about wisdom, and I want you to think back on your definition, okay, that you wrote down. Because I have no idea what you wrote down. Typically when we think of wisdom, we think of it in terms of choices. Making wise choices. Making wise decisions which is good and true. And we see that in the Bible. We see that in our lives. Like, I, you know, I told Gabby the other day, she went to go play with neighbor, some of the kids in the neighborhood. Uh, they got in trouble not that long ago because, you know, they found this creek and there was some questionable objects in there. And so, you know, they were trying to hide it. And so this time I told her, okay, you can go play, make wise choices. And then I realized she doesn't know what that means. So I said, do what I tell you to do, <laughs> okay? Uh, so I was like, she doesn't know what wise is. But, um, but when we think of wisdom, we think of it usually in terms of choices and decisions. We think of knowledge. So wisdom is this knowledge and how to apply that knowledge correctly in circumstances, which is good and true. But I think what we're seeing in wisdom here and what we see in the Bible, that wisdom is even it's more robust. It's even bigger and wider than that. The Bible paints a, a more robust picture of wisdom. Proverbs 3.19 says this, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, 
he established the heavens. And so we know that the, the world was created with wisdom. Well, what does that even mean? Have you ever thought about that? I know we've read that in the Bible. What does it mean that God created the world with wisdom? It's because when we're, seeing, when we're talking about wisdom here, it's this understanding that when we're talking about the wisdom of God, it's talking about that He knows how everything works. He knows He governs it all because He knows how everything works because He's created it. He knows everything. And so God is wisdom. Last week, me and Bob were talking before the Job study, and um, we were talking about some of his projects, and so Bob's a builder, right, as you all know, but he works with architects, and some of the, one of the questions I asked him was, do you ever get the situation where an architect designs something like pretty awesome and beautiful, but then you get the plans and you're like, this is dumb, we can't do this, like, you can't put this here, and he's like, absolutely all the time right? Like that's a reality. That's like a conflict. But when we, talk, when we look at God, God is both the architect and the builder. He knows how everything's made. He knows how everything's governed because He is that. He's the one who has made all things. And so when we're talking about wisdom, we're talking about understanding. The source of wisdom and understanding is God Himself. All right? So it's not just talking about decisions we make. Yes, that's part of wisdom. But when, we, when we're talking about it here, as they're painting this picture of something that needs to be found that's valuable, what we're starting to see a picture of is that it's something that man can't find on his own. It's not something that man can just conjure up on his own. I can't just go sit out in the woods and hum and cross my legs for, and clear my mind and figure out the answers to life. Why? Because I'm a man. God is wisdom. So let's look at verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? There's that understanding again. He kind of dials down into, into wisdom. Where is this place of understanding? So again, thinking about that mind image. Where is this place? Where is this? And if I'm lost in this dark mind, I'm looking for something valuable, where is this place, th this valuable thing is? Where is wisdom to be found? That's the question. Where is one supposed to find wisdom? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air, abandoned and in death, and death say, we have heard rumor of it with our ears. Verse 23, God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave the wind its weight, and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning and th of thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, here we go, Behold, remember this from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So here's the answer. Here's the answer to where is wisdom. How do I get wisdom? This is the answer. It's not God saying, here's your wisdom. You looked for it. You found it finally. It's not something that we can find. He says this, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And the picture that, we're that they're trying to get us to see here, that wisdom is actually for us trusting in God. Because God is the source of wisdom. All right, so think about this. When you have suffered, when something has happened to you, when your circumstances are difficult, 
to where do you run? How many times have you tried to figure it out on your own? How many times have you tried to consult uh, things from your past? How many times have you turned to sin? How many times have you tried to escape the things that are plaguing you and, and that, are, that are causing you to suffer? Instead, the picture here is that, hey, if you want wisdom, if you want wisdom to help you get out of this suffering, to, to take you through this suffering, well, you can't find it. Because it's not something that you can hold. Instead, trust in the one who is wisdom, who knows wisdom. And so, for us, when we are suffering, the best thing we can do is to trust in God because He knows the way out. And, and let me just say this too. That doesn't mean He's going to give you the answer. So if you ask the question, like we, we talk about this again, why, why is this happening to me? You may never know the answer to why. Because that's not your calling. That's not even our place to know why. For us, wisdom is fearing the Lord, trusting in the Lord. That is the way for, to understand. It's turning away from evil and sin in the world and trusting in God. Turn to God. He's wisdom. And so I, if you're reading along in Job... I put a question there. I want you to ask yourself as you read, how do we as humans often search for wisdom? Where do we search for wisdom and understanding? And Pastor Casey talked about some of this a few sermons ago. Sometimes we turn to pop psychology. Sometimes we turn to just Facebook memes. By the way, why, why do we ever pay attention to just memes on the internet as like truth? Even though it is truth, like, oh wow, this, this is funny, but it's true. I should start living my life like this. No! We turn away from that and we turn to God. We turn to the source of wisdom, wisdom itself. Um, Christopher Ash says this. I thought it was a helpful quote. He says, it's about the search, talking about Job, it's about the search of a believer suffering, of a believing sufferer for wisdom. The longing to understand why this world is as it is. And implicit, therefore, is that as yet unexplained start to the poem is the invitation to us as readers to not just be philosophers, thinkers, or debaters, but honest seekers after wisdom. The point of Job, the point of the reason why you're here, is not just to gain knowledge, it's not to be a better philosopher, it's not to just to think these things out abstractly. No, but it's to seek honestly after wisdom. Now, I can replace wisdom, you can seek honestly after God. Because remember in the first chapters, why is this even happening? Why does Satan even bring Job up? Because the Satan is saying, Job only follows you because of the stuff you've given him, the tangible things you've given him, the blessings you've given him. He doesn't, if you take all those things away, if you take his health, his family, everything away, he's not actually devoted to you. And so what we see in Job is a person who is wholly devoted to God. He wants to follow God for who God is, not because of what he can get out of God. He follows God because of who he is. What have we learned? That God is a sovereign, mighty, powerful, awesome. He follows God because of who He is. But you see humans searching for wisdom all throughout the Bible. Genesis 3. Right, you see this. Man eats the forbidden fruit, by, uh, forbidden by God, because why? Satan tells them what? That they'll be, that's a, not life God, if you're, <laughs> but they'll be like God. 
Oh, I can be like God? Okay. Genesis 11, not far after that, the man tries to build a tower of Babel which reaches to the heaven to show off their glory, to show off their wisdom. And so what we see in the Bible over and over again is people trying to exert their own power, their own uh, works, and attempting to grasp wisdom. Wisdom. And so I, I just want to say this too. It, it's right and honest for us to, to ask the question, why? Why is this happening? But ultimately, the answer to that you may never know. So as Christians, our, our comfort and our purpose and our meaning are found in clinging to God. And I think I've said this a few times because what's a, what's a critique a lot from someone who's an atheist or whatever, uh, or someone skeptical towards religion? They say, oh, Christians, they, you know, religion is just a, it's just a crutch to get through life. I love what John Piper says. He says, no, it's, it's a full-body cast. It's more than that. It's more than just a crutch. It's, it's everything. Because we are relying completely and totally on God. Let's keep going. Uh, verses 23. Oh, sorry, I already did that, didn't I? Let's keep going past that. I got ahead of myself. Verse 28. And again, I I just want to read this again. He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Right? So this fear of the Lord, devoting oneself to God for who He is. Turning away from our sin, our selfishness, the things that we often pursue. God is the object of our faith. Right? The object of our faith isn't the answers to our question why. We look to God as the object. We want God for who He is. And so um, this, this idea of wisdom as this more robust understanding, we see it in the Bible. In Psalm 104, I think we read that earlier where it talks about the, the Lord as God has established creation by His wisdom. Uh, you even see that in Romans chapter 1. If you look at all of Romans chapter 1, there, there's this view of creation, and it's rooted in the wisdom of God that He set things right but as you keep going in Romans, you, you see that man has sinned against God by trying to do things in their own wisdom, by turning things upside down. So you see it in Romans 1. And then again, uh, in the New Testament, we see that ultimately Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. It calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Colossians 2, 3, and 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24. Let's read that. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians here real quick. One eighteen through 24 it says this for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man 
and the weakness of God is stronger than man. So you see this picture of Jesus being the wisdom of God. And it's this beautiful picture of Jesus being God, that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so when we're looking at Job and we see this longing for wisdom, we see this longing for understanding, ultimately it's a longing for Jesus. Because this wisdom, this longing is fulfilled all in Jesus when Jesus comes. As he is the wisdom of God. Okay, let's keep going. Chapter 29. Uh, I'm going to read the first six verses. And I want you to think about this word longing. I want you to think, uh, you can kind of feel it as we read it. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh that, I, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter um, and the rock poured out, for streams of oil, me for streams of oil. That washed with butter is just another way to talk about prosperity and the things that he received. And so in this first, in these first six verses, we see Job longing and we see him remembering. Now, a lot of times, like when we think about longing, remember, we think of like nostalgia. Oh, you remember the good old days? Remember that time when blah, 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 blah. Remember that time, honey, when I was skinny? Man, those were good days, you know. You know, this is more than that, all right? And what we're going to see, and this chapter is pretty positive, but um, when we get to verse thir- chapter 30, we get some more of the real misery of Job again. But we see this longing, and I think we all can identify with this longing. Have you ever longed for something? I'm, I'm going to ask you, what's something that you've longed for? Not looking for, J- other than Jesus, okay, the, just something. What's something that you've longed for? Boom. Sit down and not have to clean house the rest of your life. Yeah. What else? Having no pain. Anything else? What's something else you've longed for? Yeah. Family, kids, absolutely. Yes. Something I remember when I was in, uh, in college... You know, me and Jesse, we were dating long distance. We knew each other since middle school, but we were dating long distance for two years. And every time I made that drive home Sunday night, two and a half hours home to be in class Monday morning, man, I just remember longing for the day when we could just be married. So (laughs) we wouldn't have to do this anymore. (laughs) We could be together. But, you know, that longing, that's a, you ever have it where it almost takes over, it almost overwhelms you with this emotion of longing. And a lot of the times, this, this longing activates you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. In that scenario with my wife, like, I sold, like, I didn't have any money. And I was really bad with money. Whenever I worked in college or part-time throughout college, when I had money, I just spent it. Um, but what happened was, you know, I'd want to go see Jesse in Jacksonville. So I would go to Plato's Closet with whatever clothes I can find, and I'd sell them, you know, and so I'd sell clothes, and they'd give me 15 bucks, I'd put it in my gas tank, 
And, you know, that's exactly what I'd need to get there. And then I'd hope all weekend that my parents, my dad would be like, son, let me pay for your gas. Um, and sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. And I was like, oh, gosh, I want to dip in savings this weekend. Right, but I would, I would do things. I, I would, you know, you ever sold plasma or anything like that? Yeah. But, you, you know, I was doing things because I, I longed to see Jesse. And it was worth it, by the way. It was always worth it. But this longing, we see it in the Bible all the time, all throughout the Bible. You see this longing of Israel for their salvation, for, for this Messiah that would come and set them free. You even see it in the New Testament when Jesus has come. We long for His return. We long for the day He'll come back again and set all things right, make all things new. Talked about pain and suffering, that all that will one day be wiped away, and that will be with Christ forever. We long for that. And so it's this biblical emotion, this biblical thing that we see all throughout the Scriptures. But it's interesting with Job, as we keep going, I want you, I want you to see what he's longing for. He's not just, it's not just nostalgia, right? He's not just saying, oh, remember when I had all my stuff, you know? Remember that? But I want you to, I want you to see the heart of Job when we get to verse 7. Let's read along. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I, this is past tense, right? He's talking about his past. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. And the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, it approved. Because I delivered, and here we go. All right, well, let, let, let's stop right there. So, there, see this picture? This picture of someone who walks in, and the room calms down. You, you know someone, you've experienced that, I know, right? Every time Pastor Casey walks in the room. Yeah, man, you know? No, but seriously, so at work, I work at Rawlings, okay? Mr. Rawlings is the head honcho, Okay? And whenever he walks into a room, especially unexpected, you better believe that there's a reverence. This man holds the keys to your job, right? This man holds the keys to the decisions. He holds the keys to the money. When he walks in, everyone that was slouching back straightens up their chair. They zoom in on the camera. And, you know, all these things, everything, you know, you feel this reverence. But, I mean, think about that. You, you, have you never known someone like that? When someone walks in the room, there's this reverence and there's this, this respect for this person. And so we, we see that here with Job, that this is who he used to be when he walked in. And it wasn't because he was scary, right? And we're going to see that here in a second. It was this reverential awe of this great man who Job was. This is what his life used to look like. But look in verse 12. So I had that because... I deliver the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless, fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. Let's stop there. 
So why was he revered? I want you to see the heart, because of the heart of someone who is haughty, who thinks a lot of themselves, when I walk in a room, they know I have the money, they know I have power, they know I have respect, that I demand it. That's not what Job is saying. People respected me because I cared for those who were the lowly in society. I cared for those who were helpless. I cared for those who were marginalized and rejected in society. So we see the heart of Job. This isn't Job bragging. Again, this is Job longing. He's longing for that day again so that he can go back to caring for the widow, for the orphan, for those who are dejected and rejected. He, he cares for those. He wants to go back to that. And it shows us something about the heart of God. He doesn't want to go back to it because he wants to spend all his money and just be this powerful man. No, Job wants to go back to that because that's who he is. He, because he sees that's who God is. We went through Amos, was it last year? We see a God of justice, God who cares for these same people. Job's heart is matching the heart of God. We see a man who is devoted to God, even in the midst of a suffering. Verse 21, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, in the light of my face when they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who, comfort, who, like one who comforts mourners. So you see this picture? Think about that same person who, who would cause awe for the good reasons, right? You know, um, there's, there's been many people like that in my life who, let's say someone says something against this person, I'm going to be like, oh man, what's he going to say? You know, what, what kind of what thing is he going to say here? I'm glad that's not me, because I wouldn't know what to say. And so there's this trust in Job. There's this trust in uh, who he is by the people around him. Let's keep going. And so uh, chapter 29 shows this picture of Job longing, but he's not just longing for nostalgia of when he was great and awesome and powerful. He's longing for this, to be able to do the things that he had done before. And it just shows his heart. Even now we long for justice, peace, protection. So that knowing that Christ is the fulfillment of this longing and that we await, we await his return, how should this shape we, we live now? How should that truth shape the way that we live even now as we await him? Chapter 30, let's keep going. We're, we're uh, almost out of time. Verse 1, but now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained. So it's taking a turn here, all right? We're seeing more of chapter 3 type Job now. I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation. Let's go down to verse 9. And now I've become their song. I am a byword to them. We don't really use that word byword, but I think it sums up the picture now of, of these same people who look to Job. Now he is a byword to them. And so you can think it's almost like 
the name Job is like a curse to them. It's like a cuss word, right? Uh, have you ever seen The Office? If you haven't, that's okay. You'll get it anyway. The Office, there's this character named Dwight Schrute. And there's another character named Andy. And the boss over there is Michael Scott. And Michael, Dwight has always been loyal to Michael. He's always been his number two. He's always been caring, always wanted to be his number two. But when Andy comes into the picture, he's trying to usurp Dwight. And what he does is that he gets around Michael, and when he messes up, he's like, remember his name is Dwight Schrute, he says, oh man, sorry, I must have shrewded that. And Michael's like, what? Shrewded? Never heard that? Some people around your office use it all the time. When something bad happens and someone's late, they call it shrewded. And so what he's trying to do is make Dwight's name like a curse word to Michael so that he can gain something. Or if, like, I'm a liar, I lie all the time, you might say, hey, man, stop, don't listen to him. Like, stop being such a Josh, okay? You know? Like, he's using, so they use his name, like, oh, look at this Job. This Job is a byword. It's, it's like a curse word. So you see how the mentality has flipped all throughout chapter 30, you see this. We're going to have to zoom through here. Chapter 31. But mo- so let me just summarize again. A law of chapter 30 is the anti of what we just read in 29. So while he was revered, and he longs for that, now he, he laments the fact that that's no more, that those same people look at him. And it makes me think of it makes me think of the betrayal that Jesus suffered. You think that even these, all these people that were following him, the people that laid down branches when he came into Jerusalem, and all these people that followed him and praised him that he did things for, when he went to the cross, all those people were gone. Betrayed. They didn't want anything to do with him. Because all of a sudden association with Jesus and something bad for you. It's this picture of them not really wanting Jesus for who he was. Right? They just wanted Jesus because, oh, he healed me. He did these things, which those things were great. But this betrayal, it just it makes us think of the betrayal that Jesus suffered for us, yet he did that willingly again for us. Finally, uh, chapter 31 um, we're not going to cover everything here, but it's, it's got a little bit of a structure to it. Um, we see, and it's kind of odd. So, um, when, did anyone ever go to, like, youth camp? When, like, if you grew up in church, you ever go to youth camp or anything? Yeah. So, I remember, like, every year in youth camp, they'd separate the guys from the girls, and we'd have the talk, you know, uh, which wasn't bad to have that talk. It was a good thing, but I remember one year when I was in high school, uh, the speaker was like, his text was Job 31.1. It says this, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So what, he's saying, what Job is saying here, he's saying, I'm not going to look, I've made a covenant with myself not to look lustfully at a woman. He's not talking about enjoying a, a beautiful creation of God. He's talking about looking lustfully at a woman. And so he, the speaker at my youth camp used it as a text, and he said, guys, here's what you're going to do all week. Because, you know, it's like young men, they all struggle with this, right? Looking less, you're around uh, girls all week. So anytime you see 
Another guy looking at a girl, you're going to punch him on the shoulder as hard as you can and say, Job 31-1. And our shoulders were bruised, okay? But then it just became this thing of like, you could just be looking at the sky and be like, Job 31-1, like, because we're idiots, you know? We just want to punch, looking for excuses to punch one another. But what we're seeing here is something deeper because, and I think a lot of you can attest to this, you know, a lot of times in the Bible when we see uh, sexual integrity and faithfulness, it's related a lot of times to our religious faithfulness, all right? If one of those is off, it usually affects the other. They're, They're so intertwined. You know, Paul, a lot of times in his letters, he calls out in the church sexual immorality specifically and deals with that specifically because it's so serious. But what Job is doing here is that when he says, I've made a covenant, we're not talking about like a covenant that God made with Abraham. No, Job is talking about a covenant, a promise he's made to himself. I'm not going to look lustfully upon a woman. And then at the end, he he kind of reemphasizes that. And so, man, we we really can't go into all this chapter, but I I just want us to, to look also to the New Testament with this. Because we see Job, again, we see his heart, that although suffering, he still desires to be a man of purity, a man above reproach that is devoted to God. I mean, think about in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just read. I'm going to read it real quick, mainly because I can't quote it. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, and then later on, Matthew writes about lust after a woman, that if you've lusted with a, Jesus talks about if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, that you've committed adultery. Again, looking, Jesus is always concerned with looking at the heart. He's not saying, oh, it's like a lesser kind of adultery. No, it is adultery. It is adultery. But what Joe's trying to get us to see is that he's made this covenant with his eyes not to gaze at a woman lustfully. He's seeking this purity before God because he knows that the pure will see God. Job desires God for who he is. We see this over and over. Now, um, we're, next week we're going to get into chapter 32. Uh, I can't remember where it ends, but we're going to get into a friend that hasn't even been mentioned yet. And there's, there's a, I'm just going to tell you a front, man. You'll want to come back because there's a lot of debate, you know, about, hey, is this friend, Elihu, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he both? Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of that, and so uh, we're going we're gonna to look through some of that. We're going to look through some, go back and look through some of the things Job has said, all right, because um, I think Job, even in his heart, and his, he's bent towards God, I think that there's probably some things that he said that is not right about God, so we'll come back uh, to that next week, um, but we'll go ahead. We got two minutes. Anyone have any questions? thoughts okay cool well since we got two minutes real quick i'm going to use it all up so um in job 31 if you look at on the last page of the handout it gives a structure of kind of just a general structure of what it is and so he's made a covenant with himself uh challenge is issued and then the large chunk of it is a uh list of sin. He says, if I have done this, 
then I would deserve this. If I've done this, then I would deserve this. And it's this picture of, hey, yes, sin does deserve judgment. If I'm guilty of any of these things, then yes, I should be punished. Um, but ultimately, he comes back at the end, and it's interesting how these how poetry is uh, structured like this. He comes back, and he repeats that challenge again in a different way, and then and at the end of um, chapter 31, he says the very last thing. He says the words, or the text tells us, he doesn't say, the words of Job are ended. He didn't say the words of Job are ended. He didn't talk about himself in the third person, but the text tells us the words of Job is ended. Now, he will again come back later, and he'll say something briefly, but as far as like making arguments, lamenting, appealing to anything, making a lengthy speech, that's over with. So we only have two more people that are going to speak throughout the whole rest of this book, the friend Elihu, and then also at the end, God. So we got two more weeks. Um, I hope everyone comes back. And again, I just want to say, if you have questions, um, man, feel free to ask me. We can work through it together. Um, I'd love to be able to, if you're struggling with something right now, again, we, we can look through any of this, you know. Uh, I may not have the answer right away, but we can look at the text together and try and figure it out. Let's pray together. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful that you brought us together tonight. Um, we're thankful for your word and Job. Um, although there's difficult themes to cover um, throughout this book, Lord, we know that you've uh, inspired this book by your Holy Spirit. And uh, Lord, that it is uh, meant for us to, to read and hear and to be taught and preached so that you may conform us uh, more to you, that we would trust more in you, that we would not lean on our own understanding and wisdom, but that we would lean on the understanding and wisdom of you. And Lord, we are so thankful for the sacrifice we have in Jesus Christ and what your Son has done for us. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.